I'll continue with the Atonement by Arthur W. Pink, chapter 13, The Atonement, Its Results. Nothing could be plainer than the above cases to which many others might be added. All through the patriarchal and mosaic economies we find that the sacrifices were offered for the specific purpose of pacifying God's righteous vengeance on sin, appeasing his judicial displeasure, and turning away his wrath, the effect of which was expressly termed a reconciliation. See Leviticus 16.20, 2 Corinthians 29.24, and so forth. Surely none is so mad as to suppose that Israelites offered sacrifices to turn away their own anger from God. Then inasmuch as those Old Testament sacrifices were foreshadowing of Christ's sacrifice, how can it be said that the great end of his work was to divert man's enmity from God rather than to divert his wrath from us? But rather than rely upon mere reasoning, let us appeal to the clear teachings of the New Testament upon this vital point. In Romans 3.25 we read, Whom God hath set forth a propitiation through faith in his blood to declare his righteousness. Now, propitiation is that which placates or appeases by satisfying offended justice. Nor is the force of this verse in any way weakened by the fact that the Greek word for propitiation is rendered mercy seat in Hebrew 9.5, for the mercy seat was the blood-sprinkled one. It was the place where the high priest applied the atoning sacrifice for the satisfying of God's justice against the sins of his people. The Hebrew word for mercy seat signifies a covering, and it was so designated for a double reason. First, because it hid from view the condemning law, the table of stone beneath it. Second, because the blood spattered upon it covered the offenses of Israel from the eye of offended justice by an adequate compensation. That which it was fitly designed to typify was the averting of deserved vengeance by means of the substitutionary interposition. Again in Romans 5.10 we are told, For if when we were enemies we were reconciled to God by the death of his Son, much more being reconciled we shall be saved by his life. We were enemies, God's enemies, obnoxious to his righteous judgments. This word denotes the relation in which we stood to God as the objects of his displeasure subject to the hostility of his law. We were reconciled, that is, brought back again into his favor, and that not by the Spirit's work in us, but by the death and propitiatory sacrifice of his Son. That this statement refers to the averting of God's anger from us and the restoring of us to his favor may be seen by the following considerations. First, in that the immediate context is commending the amazing love of God to us, verse 8, whereof reconciliation is one of the highest proofs or manifestations. But if verse 10 were referring to the laying down of our enemy to God, it would rather be an instance of our love for him than of his for us. Second, in that the terms of verse 10 are unmistakably parallel with those of verses 8 and 9, and there we read, while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us, which can only mean Christ died for us as ungodly to deliver us from the death which God's holiness required, verses 6 and 7, and died thus to bring us into favor of God. Third, in that reconciled to God by the death of his Son is only another description of being justified by his blood in verse 9. Now to be justified is God's reconciliation to us. His acceptance of us unto his favor and not our conversion to him. And that was in order that we should be saved from wrath. Verse 9. Fourth, in that the following verse 
we are said to have received a reconciliation, verse 11, which cannot be meant of laying down of our arms a rebellion. We cannot be said to receive our conversion, but we can that which Christ sacrificed is produced for us. All things are of God who hath reconciled us to himself by Jesus Christ, 2 Corinthians 5.18. As this passage will come before us again in a later chapter, only a few words upon it can now be offered. Who hath reconciled us? When did God do so? At the cross, as verse 21 clearly enough shows, by whom were we reconciled? Not by the work of the Spirit within subduing our enmity, but by Jesus Christ. How are we reconciled? By Christ being made sin for us, verse 21, and thus receiving in himself the penalty of the law, and thereby appeasing God's justice. It was by his sacrifice that the Lord Jesus reconciled us to God, for the design of a sacrifice was to propitiate God and not to reform the offerer, and that he might reconcile both into God in one body by the cross, having slain the enmity thereby, Ephesians 2:15-16. This important verse really calls for an exposition of its whole context, but we must content ourselves with a few brief words only. A careful analysis of verses 11-15 reveals the fact that both a double alienation and a double reconciliation is under discussion. There is first an antagonism between Jews and Gentiles, verse 11 and 12. Second, there is a separation between God and his people, verses 12-13. Conversely, through the satisfaction which Christ has made unto God, elect Jews and elect Gentiles have been united into one new man, verse 15, and both have been reconciled unto God, verse 16. Thus, the Christ is our peace, of verse 14, is amplified as between ourselves mutually, verse 15, between us and God, verse 16, and in consequences therefrom, through him we both have access by one spirit unto the Father, verse 18 that he, that is, the incarnate Son of God, might reconcile, that is, restore to God's judicial favor, both, that is, elect Jews and elect Gentiles, unto God, that is, considered as the moral governor of the universe, in one body, that is, Christ's humanity, see Colossians 1.22, in the body of his flesh, our Lord's humanity is here designated one body because the Spirit is emphasizing the one for the many, as in Romans 5:17-19. It is a representative character of Christ's satisfaction which is here in view. Christ sustaining the responsibility of all his people. It was in his humanity that he rendered obeisance unto God, as it was his deity which gave value to all that he did, having slain the enmity thereby, that is, God's holy wrath, the hostility of his law, it should be carefully noted that the enmity of verse 16 cannot refer to that which existed between Jews and Gentiles, for that has been disposed of in verses 14 and 15. Enmity is here personified or slain as a sin as in Romans 8.3. Thus the verse means that all the sins of God's people met upon Christ and divine justice took satisfaction from him. In consequence, God's enmity has ceased and they are restored to his favor. While the gracious provisions originated in the love of God and the atonement was the righteous means of removing his holy hatred against us. Though the precise expression of God being reconciled to us is not found in so many words in Scripture, phrases of precisely equivalent import most certainly are. Thus, O Lord, I will praise thee. 
Though thou wast angry with me, thine anger is turned away. Isaiah 12.1 Return thou, backsliding Israel, saith the Lord. I will not cause mine anger to fall upon thee, for I am merciful, saith the Lord. I will not keep anger forever. Jeremiah 3.12 And I will establish my covenant with thee, and thou shalt know that I am the Lord, that thou mayest remember and be confounded, and never open thy mouth any more because of thy shame when I am pacified toward thee. For all that thou hast done, saith the Lord God. Ezekiel 16:63. To merely present a God who is willing to be reconciled to sinners is a wretched and wicked perversion of the gospel. Should it be humbly inquired why does Scripture throw the main emphasis on our being reconciled to God, we answer in the words of the Puritan Thomas Manton, first because we are involved. It is the usual way of speaking amongst men. He that offendeth is said to be reconciled because he was the cause of the breach. He needed to reconcile himself and to appease him whom he hath offended, which the innocent party needeth not. He needeth only to forgive and to lay aside his just anger. We offended God, not he us. Therefore the scripture usually saith we are reconciled to God. Second, we have the benefit it is no profit to God that the creature enters into his peace. He is happy within himself without our love or service, but we, are, but we are undone if we are not upon good terms with him. For Christ, to make perfect reconciliation, it was required that he should turn away the wrath of God from his people by removing their sin from before his face by means of a propitiatory sacrifice, as also that we should be brought to turn away from all our opposition to God and brought into voluntary and joyful obedience to him. Until both of these are effected, reconciliation is not perfected. The one is secured by Christ's satisfaction, the other is accomplished by his sending his spirit to renew us, Titus 3.5. A disposition must be produced in the rebel to return unto God and desire restoration to holiness and happiness in God. For can two walk together except they be agreed, Amos 3.3. 3. Hence the servants of God are bidden to go forth and beseech sinners to be reconciled to him, 2 Corinthians 5.20. Obedience to which consists of faith's entrance into the peace which Christ has made, Colossians 1.20. Yet this will not be till we cease from all fighting against God. When they do so, they are said to have now received the reconciliation, Romans 5.11. In section D, its author. This is the Father himself. We do not entertain the idea for a moment that Christ died in order to render God compassionate toward his people, not so. It was the love of God which gave his Son to die for them. The satisfaction of Christ was in order to the removal of those legal obstacles which our sins had interposed against God's love flowing out to us in a way consistent with the honor of his justice. Reconciliation was not the procurement of God's grace, but an effect thereon. God's reconciling us to himself does not imply any change either in his will or disposition toward us. His infinite displeasure with sin his disapprobation of our person considered as offenders and the engagement of divine justice against us as transgressors are perfectly consistent with his everlasting love to us and with his eternal and immutable approbation of our persons as viewed in Christ. If we distinguish sharply between personal resentment and judicial condemnation, all difficulty on this point vanishes. God loved us in respect of the free purpose of his will to send Christ to redeem us and to satisfy for our sins. He was angry with us in respect of his violated law and provoked justice by sin. John Owen, volume 9, page 172. 
that the Father of the, is the author of reconciliation is plain from 2 Corinthians 5.19. God was in Christ reconciling the world unto himself. After many hours of concentrated study upon it, we give it as our matured conviction that this expression covers the whole of our reconciliation from its conception in the mind of God before the foundation of the world till our final glorification in heaven. This expression, God was in Christ, parenthesis, a name of office, not of nature, reconciling expresses the agency of the Father in the entire work of reconciliation. First, in choosing and appointing Christ for this work, Isaiah 42.1, Romans 3.2.25. Second, in the covenant and agreement with him, Isaiah 49.3.6, Psalms 89.3.4. Third, in calling and sending Christ into this world, John 10.36, Hebrew 5.4 and 5. Fourth, in fitting Christ for this stupendous undertaking, Hebrews 10.5, Isaiah 11.1.3, and John 3.34. Fifth, in his dealings with Christ at the cross, Isaiah 53, 4, 5. Sixth, in accepting his expiatory sacrifice, Romans 4, 24 and 6, 4. Seventh, in glorifying Christ, Matthew 28, 18 and Psalm 2, 8. In section E, its scope. God was in Christ reconciling the, a world unto himself, 2 Corinthians 5, 19. In 1 Peter 2, 5, we read of the world of the ungodly here in 2 Corinthians 5.19, it is the world of the godly or elect, as in John 6.33, there is no the in the Greek. The expression is indefinite, though not universal. First, the word to show that men and not angels, 2 Peter 2.4, are intended, the sinning angels had neither mediator nor reconciler. Second, to show the amplitude of God's grace, confined not to the Jews, see Romans 11.15. Third, to denote the ground of the gospel tender. All who are concerned should be awakened to seek after this privilege. The gospel offer is made indefinitely to all sorts and conditions of men. The added words in 2 Corinthians 5.19, not imputing their trespasses unto them, is proof positive that all mankind are not included in the world, for God does not impute trespasses unto the wicked. Ephesians 5, 5, 6. Having made peace through the blood of his cross by him to reconcile all things unto himself, by him whether things in earth or things in heaven, Colossians 1, 20. The key to this verse lies in noting the particular epistle in which it is found. Here the apostle was refuting a false Gnosticism in angelolatry and spirit emanations which had been introduced by human philosophy to do Christ as the only mediator between God and man, C 2.18. The Holy Spirit here shows the true relation of angels to Christ. They were created by him, 1.15 and 6.10. Further, they were to the gainers by his satisfaction, 1.19 and 21. There has once been a union between angels and man as fellow citizens in one vast empire of God. But sin had dissolved that union. Sin is rebellion against God, and loyal angels could have no fellowship with sinners. But the great atonement was restored in happy relationship between holy angel and God's elect, Ephesians 1.10. They too have gained by it. Christ has restored the disrupted harmony of the universe. A clear proof and blessed illustration of this is to be found in Revelation 22.9, where an angel speaking of himself to John says, I am thy fellow servant. It may help some if we give a summary of the whole subject. 
Number one, its origin was in was the love of God. Romans 5.8, 2 Corinthians 5.18. Number two, its basis was the everlasting covenant, the council of peace, Zechariah 6.13. Number three, its procuring cause was the satisfaction of Christ, Romans 5.10, which has made peace, Colossians 1.20. Number four, its occasion was the legal alienation between God and his people through sin, Ephesians 2.16. Number five, its need lay in the satisfaction being required by divine justice. Romans 5, 9, and 10. Number 6, its nature is a restoring to God's judicial favor, Colossians 1, 21, 22. And number 7, its communicator is the Holy Spirit, Romans 14, 17. Number 8, its requirement is that sinners be reconciled to God, 2 Corinthians 5, 20, which means the embracing of his offer of reconciliation through Christ, and this by ceasing all opposition to him, Psalms 2, 12. Nine, its reception is by faith, Romans 5, 1 and 11. Ten, its consequences is sin remitted, 2 Corinthians 5, 19. And access to God, Ephesians 2, 18. Eleven, its publication is by the gospel of peace, Ephesians 6, 15. Number twelve, its extent is the reuniting of all holy beings in the universe, Ephesians 1, 10. Chapter 14. The Atonement, Its Results, Continued At the beginning of our last chapter, we pointed out that the principal results secured by the satisfaction which Christ offered unto God may be summed up in these four words, reconciliation, remission, redemption, and righteousness. It is indeed remarkable and calls for our profoundest admiration that God caused each of them to be shadowed forth on this earth plane at the very time of our Lord's Passion. Just as the nature of that unparalleled transaction which was taking place in the unseen between the judge of all earth and the mediator was outwardly adumbrated in all the details of Christ's trial before Caiaphas, Herod, and Pilate, so also were the leading effects secured by that transaction illustrated in concrete and visible form. A wonderful field of study which has been entered by scarcely any is here open for your reverent exploration. Perhaps of few hints now dropped will be sufficient to bestir some to prayerfully investigating it. Reconciliation is the bringing together again of two parties who have been alienated. Christ has, by his satisfaction, reunited the governor of the universe unto his sinning people. Strikingly was this adumbrated by what we read in Luke 23, 10, and 11. And Herod, with his men of war, set him at naught, and mocked and arrayed him in a gorgeous robe, and set him again to Pilate. And the same day Pilate and Herod were made friends together, for before they were at enmity between themselves. Why has the Holy Spirit recorded this detail? Is it nothing more than a mere historical allusion? Of what interest to us is the relation which existed between Pilate and Herod? Why introduce this statement in verse 12 right after what is said in verse 11? For what reason does the Spirit emphasize the same day? The spiritually minded should have no difficulty in supplying answers to these questions. It was God causing the glorious consequence of Christ's death to be tangibly imaged before the eyes of men. Remission is the consolation of guilt. Christ has, by his satisfaction, propitiated the offended justice of God. He has made complete amends to the law for every injury which the sin of his people had wrought. He has, by his sacrifice, perfectly healed the breach which our transgressions had made. Christ has repaid all the wrongs which the iniquities of his people 
had not had done to the manifestive holiness of God. I restore that which I took not away, Psalm 69.4. In the light of this fact, read what is recorded in Luke 22.50-51. And one of them smote the servant of the high priest and cut off his right ear. And Jesus answered and said, Suffer ye thus. He touched his ear and healed him. What a picture of Christ on the very eve of his death, neutralizing the damage which his hearing people had done. Redemption is the liberating of sin's captives. Christ has, by his satisfaction, emancipated those who were slaves of sin, the helpless serfs of Satan. He has delivered from prison those who were bound. He has brought from death into life those who were cast in the sepulchre by Adam's transgressions. By one man's sin entered into the world and death by sin, and so death passed upon all men, Romans 5.12. From that dreadful state Christ has freed his people. God caused this, too, to be adumbrated in connection with Calvary, for in Matthew 27.50-52 we read, Jesus, when he had cried again with a loud voice, yielded up the Spirit. And behold, the veil of the temple was rent in twain from top to the bottom, and the earth did quake, and the rocks rent, and the graves were opened, and many bodies of the saints which slept arose. Righteousness is that which qualifies a saint to stand in the presence of the thrice holy God. It is that which fits him for the court of heaven. As we read in Isaiah 61.10, I will greatly rejoice in the Lord. My soul shall be joyful in my God, for he hath clothed me with the garments of salvation, he hath covered me with the robes of righteousness. Such a righteousness cannot be wrought out by man, therefore was it secured for his people by the perfect obedience of Christ. This is the best robe of Luke 15:22, namely the righteousness of Christ imputed. This also was shadowed forth on the earth at the time our Savior died. The soldiers took his garments. Among them was his coat, without seam, woven from top throughout emblem of the flawless unity of his life lived out by the power from above. That perfect robe became the property of one whose wicked acts were instrumental in crucifying the Lord of glory. John 19, 23-24 Oh my readers, what a truly marvelous book is the Bible. Having previously considered the first of our four consequences of Christ's satisfaction reconciliation let us now turn to number two remission. That reconciliation and remission of sins are closely connected is clear from 2 Corinthians 5.19. God was in Christ reconciling the world unto himself, not imputing their trespasses unto them. That which was the ground of reconciliation is equally the ground of pardon. Necessarily so. Reconciliation implies in its very nature a release from the punishment of sin. On God's part is the lying aside of his anger, and that was possible only because our sins were put away, on our part of laying aside enmity and disobedience, which is possible only by an utter reconciliation of sin. Again, the fruit of reconciliation is fellowship, and that is only promoted by the remission of sins, for two cannot walk together except they be agreed. In taking up this most blessed subject of remission, let us consider a its nature. Remission is the sovereign prerogative of God as judge, whereby he acquits the believing sinner from all liability to suffer punishment as a satisfaction to his law, and that on account of the satisfaction of Christ, applied by the Spirit and appropriated through repentance and faith. Remission is God's 
declining to deal with his people according as justice required from for their sins and that because he has received full compensation for them from Christ in their stead. Because the divine creditor has received full payment from their surety, the debtors are discharged. Thus, remission of sins is a cancellation of their guilt, a legal discharge, a removal of obligation to suffer the wrath of God. It is the verdict of the lawgiver, a sentence of not guilty. The Greek word for remission, aphos, signifies a sending away. It is translated deliverance and liberty in Luke 4.18 and forgiveness in Acts 13.38, Ephesians 1.7, and so forth. Thus, remission of sins means that God refuses to charge them to the account of him who truly believes in Christ. It is a deliverance from the curse of the law which holds us fast under its death sentence until divine grace revokes it. It is the privative or negative side of justification whereby the sinner who flees to Christ for refuge is delivered from every claim which divine justice had upon him. This is clear from Romans 4, where the apostle is expounding the truth of justification before God, and after citing the case of Abraham, he appeals to the language of David in further proof. Blessed are they whose iniquities are forgiven and whose sins are covered. Blessed is the man to whom the Lord will not impute sin, verses 7 and 8. There are other expressions used in the New Testament of equivalent in part. Thus, when he had by himself purged our sins, Hebrews 1.3. The word purged is here used in a sacrificial way and refers to the removal of them from before the face of the judge. See Psalm 51.7 and its context. Again, in Hebrews 10.10 we read, By the which will we are sanctified through the offering of the body of Jesus Christ once for all. And of 13.12, here too, sanctified is used in the sacrificial sense. The blood of Jesus Christ, his Son, cleanses us from all sin, 1 John 1.7. By contracting guilt, the sinner is defiled and becomes unclean in the sight of, the holy, of a holy God. But when his guilt is removed, he is said to be cleansed. It is important to note that 1 John 1.7 has no reference whatever to the purifying of the unholy nature what still remains within the believer. This is quite clear from the next verse. No, it predicates the taking off of the guilt of sin and our obligation unto wrath. Sin is the whole cause of God's displeasure against us and that which makes us odious in his sight. Therefore, when we are freed from sin by face appropriation of the death of Christ, we are said to be cleansed. The same term was used in connection with Israel's annual day of atonement. On that day shall the priest make an atonement for you to cleanse you that you may be clean from all your sins before the Lord, Leviticus 16.30. Most certainly that does not and cannot mean that any internal purification was effected in their souls through Aaron's offering. Three things are to be considered and sharply distinguished in connection with sin. First, its fault. This consists of a criminal action, a failing to render unto God that which is due him a transgression of his law. Now, this is not taken away by the blood of Christ, nor in the nature of the case could it be. That which is done cannot be undone. The sins we have committed cannot be uncommitted. But though our sins as faulty and criminal actions are not annihilated, they are, blessed be God, passed over, Romans 3.25, and passed by, Micah 7.18, as a ground of guilt. That is to say, God no longer imputes them to the believer. Second, it's guilt. This is the condemnation of the law. 
sin is sin simply because the law of God forbids it. When committed, it entails guilt because the law must punish it. Guilt is the law binding its transgressor to suffer its righteous penalty. Now, remission does not mean that the offender is made intrinsically innocent for having committed offenses. He is still an offender. God never repudiates a sinner to be in himself one who never omitted a duty or committed a transgression. Thus, guilt is not quality, but a relation and obligation to punishment which the law has made the sinners do, but which relation and obligation ceases when his sins are remitted. Third, it's punishment. When the believing sinner is pardoned, neither his criminal action themselves are destroyed, nor his personal desert of punishment removed, but because of Christ's sacrifice, he is discharged from all obligations to punishment. Sin is no longer imputed unto condemnation. Nay, more, the offender is dealt with, parenthesis, not regarded, before the tribunal of the divine judge as if he were pure from all sins. He still deserves, parenthesis, in himself, to be accursed, but the penitent and broken-hearted culprit is accepted into pardon and exempted from eternal punishment. He that heareth my word and believeth on him that sent me hath everlasting life and shall not come into condemnation, but is passed from death unto life. John 5.24 Neither the root nor the being of sin is removed from the believer when God pronounces sentence of forgiveness upon him. It is simply the guilt or obligation to punishment which is remitted. It is the revoking of the law's sentence against the sinner. He is legally discharged. And this because God is not imputing their trespasses unto them. 2 Corinthians 5.19 This expression, not imputing, means that God is not laying them to the charge of his people, not wrecking them, them to their account. It is a metaphor taken from commercial transactions. Sin is a debt. Matthew 6.12 God is yet going to call sinners to account. Romans 14.12 And charge their debt upon them. Matthew 25.19 Yes, people may now be gay and careless, but a day of reckoning lies ahead of them. But in that day of accounts, God will not impute the trespasses of them who are reconciled to him to Christ. Blessed is the man unto whom the Lord imputeth not iniquity. Psalm 32.2 There is, therefore, now no condemnation to them which are in Christ Jesus. Romans 8.1 Condemnation here means the damnatory sentence of the law. It is not a question of our hearts not condemning us, 1 John 3.21, nor of us finding nothing within which is worthy of condemnation. Instead, it is the far more blessed fact that God himself condemns not the one who has trusted in Christ to the saving of his soul, because by faith they are in Christ, having fled to him for refuge, Hebrews 6.18, they shall never be adjudged guilty, nor shall a sentence of eternal death be passed upon them. For sins being remitted, parenthesis, guilt removed, no ground remains for it. As far as the east is from the west, so far hath he removed our transgressions from us. Psalm 103.12 B. It's ground. As the moral governor of his universe, it becomes God's justice to deal with sin according to its deserts. Thus he spared not the angels at sin, but cast them down to hell and delivered them into the chains of darkness. Second Peter 2.4 now all of God's elect are sinners. They were so in Adam, they have been and are so in themselves. How then shall divine justice deal with them? Shall it ignore their sins and acquaint 
acquit them from punishment? Or then would be that inflexible righteousness which banished our first parents from Eden? What would become of God's own declaration that he will by no means clear the guilty? Exodus 34.7 On the other hand, if they receive their due reward and are punished, how shall grace be shown them? On what ground are their sins remitted? Not on the basis of a belated reformation, for that would be no atonement for their past crimes. Not because of their repentance, for if sins could be pardoned at so cheap a rate, then was there no need for Christ to die? He that believeth not is condemned already, John 3.18. Condemnation is a word of tremendous import, and the better we understand it, the more shall we appreciate the wondrous grace which has delivered us from its power. In the halls of a human court, the sentence condemned to death falls with a dreadful knell upon the ear of a convicted murderer and fills the spectators with sadness and horror. But in the court of divine justice, it is vested with a meaning and content infinitely more solemn and awe-inspiring. And to that court, every member of Adam's fallen race is cited, conceived in sin and shapen in iniquity. Each one enters this world under condemnation, an indicted criminal, a rebel manacle. How then is it possible for anyone to escape the execution of the dread sentence? There was only one way, and that was by the removal from us of that which called forth the sentence. That which entailed and demanded the sentence of our curse was the guilt which was inseparable from our sins. Let the guilt be removed, and there could be no condemnation. But how could the guilt be removed? only by its being legally transferred to another. Divine holiness could not ignore it, but divine grace could and did transfer it. As we are told, the Lord hath laid on him, parenthesis, the security and substitute of his people, the iniquity of us all, Isaiah 53, 6. The punishment due his church was visited upon its sponsor. Christ, by virtue of his federal, federal union with his people, which of his own accord he entered into was dealt with by divine wrath as though he had personally been the transgressor. God charged upon Christ and imputed unto him all the sins of his elect and proceeds against him accordingly. There is therefore now no condemnation to them which are in Christ Jesus from 8.1. Therefore here is an inspired and infallible inference drawn from the whole of the apostles' preceding discussion. Because Christ had been set forth a perpetuation through faith in his blood, 325, because he was delivered, parenthesis, to justice for our offenses and was raised again for our justification, 425, because by the obedience of one, many, parenthesis, saints of all ages, are made righteous, legally constituted so, 519, because they have judiciously died to sin, 62, and died to the condemning power of the law, 7-4, there is therefore no condemnation resting upon them. This is further opened in 8-3. God sending his own Son in the likeness of sinful flesh, and for sin, condemned sin in the flesh. That which was the cause of condemnation is now condemned. The no condemnation of verse 1 is explained by the condemned of verse 3. Both must not be condemned if sin itself be judged, punished. The believing sinner shall not be. How marvelous are the ways of God. As death was destroyed by death, the death of Christ, so sin by sin. By the greatest sin that was ever committed, the murder of the Son of God, 
sin itself was put away. By God's imputing the trespasses of his people unto their surety, Christ was condemned so that they might be acquitted. Christ first took our guilt upon him, and then he bore its punishment, for guilt is obligation unto punishment. This is the very nature of suretyship. He takes the debt of another upon himself, and upon the debtor's insufficiency becomes liable to payment thereof. By Christ's offering up of himself in the stead of believers, all their sins were expiated. In consequence thereof, we are able to triumphantly exclaim, Who shall lay anything to the charge of God's elect? Romans 8.33 Just as Romans 8.1 is explained in 8.3, so 2 Corinthians 5.19 is amplified in 5.21. God was in Christ reconciling the world unto himself, not imputing their trespasses unto them. And why? Because he hath made him to be sin for us who knew no sin, that we might be made the righteousness of God in him. The non-imputation of sin to the believer is not only a consequent result of Christ's sacrifice, but was the cause of his death. Trespasses are not imputed to the members of his body because they were imputed to the head. He, that is God, the mediator, made him sin, legally constituted him so, in accordance with the mutual agreement between them in the everlasting covenant. Made him sin means appointed him as a great sin-bearer officially liable to wrath. Christ was made sin for us by the reckoning of our guilt to his account, not in mere semblance, but in dread reality. Because of this, divine justice took satisfaction from him. Because of this, he died, the just for the unjust. Throughout his life and his death, the Lord Jesus was repaying all that injury which the sins of his people had done unto the manifest of justice of God. Therefore God now remits the sins of his believing people because he has received a vicarious but full satisfaction for them from the person of their surety. Through Christ we are delivered from the wrath to come, necessarily so, for an accepted sacrifice obtained, not nearly made possible, purchased the remission of sin. Vividly and blessedly was this typified in Leviticus 5, 5, 6, and 10. When he shall be guilty in one of these things, that he shall confess that he hath sinned in that thing, and he shall bring his trespass offering to the Lord for his sin which he hath sinned. And the priest shall make an atonement for him concerning his sin, and it shall be forgiven him. So Christ's blood was shed for the remission of sins, Matthew 26:28. To this great and grand truth all the prophets bore witness, Acts 10:43. In Christ, every claim of the law against the believer has been perfectly met. Thus, grace reigns not at the expense of righteousness, but through righteousness unto eternal life by Jesus Christ our Lord. Romans 5.21. Hallelujah. C. Its scope. Who, his own self, bear our sins in his own body on the tree. 1 Peter 2.24. Who sins? Believers. Which sins? Not a few of them, not the majority of them, but every one which was on the docket against them. Having forgiven you all trespasses, Colossians 2.13. Christ came here to finish the transgression and to make an end of sins and to make reconciliation for iniquity, Daniel 9.24. Rightly did James Wells say, There is no mischief that sin hath done which he hath not repaired. There is no debt that sin hath incurred that he has not paid. There is no foe under which sin has brought us that he hath not conquered. There is no fiery wrath which sin hath lighted up 
which he cannot quench. There is no curse which sin hath entailed that he hath not borne. There is no mountain that sin hath rolled in upon us which he has not overturned. There is no distance between us and God which he has not filled up. There is no condemnation to them which are in Christ Jesus, Romans 8.1. Thou hast in love to my soul delivered it from the pit of corruption, for thou hast cast all my sins behind thy back, Isaiah 38.17. As we turn our backs upon anything which we do not wish to behold, all our sins have been removed from the judicial eyes of God. God himself declares that he will not remember thy sins, Isaiah 43.25. Here our sins are likened unto a debt which has been canceled, an act of oblivion has been passed upon. I have blotted out as a thick cloud thy transgressions, and as a cloud thy sins, Isaiah 44:22. Just as the dark cloud empties itself upon the earth and then melts away under the rays of the sun, so our sins have been dried up by divine mercy, following the storm of judgment which was poured out at the cross. Who is a God like unto thee that pardoneth iniquity and passeth by the transgressors of the remnant of his heritage? And thou wilt cast all their sins into the depth of the sea. Micah 7, 18, 19, As the Egyptians were drowned in the Red Sea. God lays not aside our sins gently, but flings them away with violence as things which he cannot endure the sight of and which he is resolved never to take note of any more. Observe into the depths of the sea. Things cast into the depths of the ocean never appear again. Rivers may be turned and dried, but who could lave out the oceans? So Christ have appeared to put away sin for the sacrifice of himself, Hebrew 9.26. As far as the east is from the west, so far hath he removed our transgressions from us, Psalm 103.12. Hallelujah. Section D, its application. This brings us to the most difficult aspect of our subject. One were the Christians sins put away. The question is capable of more than one answer according as it is viewed from different standpoints. Vicariously, his sins were remitted when his surety was raised from the dead. At his birth, Christ assumed the full burden of his people's liabilities and responsibilities, and he was not released from the same until God delivered him from the grave. But personally, we are not forgiven till we believe. We need to distinguish sharply between the results secured by Christ's death for God's elect and their being individually made partakers of those effects. Christ purchased and procured a right unto our receiving forgiveness. But we do not enter into the enjoyment of this blessed blessing until our faith is placed in him. This may be illustrated by a young man who has been left in the state, but who cannot enter into the possession of the same until he is thirty. Prior to that age, he has a legal title to it, but he is not permitted to receive these inheritance. See Galatians 4, 7, 1-7. The blood of Jesus Christ, his Son, cleanses us from all sin, 1 John 1, 7. The blood of Christ needs to be considered three ways, as shed, as pleaded, and as sprinkled. As shed, this was necessary by the way of satisfaction and merit to obtain for us God's pardon for our sins, for without shedding of blood is no remission of sin, Hebrew 9.22. It is pleaded by Christ in heaven, this is the very basis of his intercession. By his own blood he entered in once into the holy place, Hebrew 9.12. And its merits he continually presents to the Father. It is also to be pleaded by us when we beg any blessing 
especially the pardon of our sins. Having therefore, brethren, boldness to enter into the holiest by the blood of Jesus. Hebrew 10.19 But it is not enough that his blood be shed and pleaded. It must be actually sprinkled or applied to our conscience. The blood of sprinkling, which speaketh better things than that of Abel. Hebrew 12.24 We must also distinguish between the general pardon received the moment we believed and the specific forgiveness which we stand in need of repeatedly. To say that there is no need for Christians to pray for forgiveness because all their sins were atoned for at the cross betrays great confusion of thought and flatly contradicts scripture. As well might an Israelite have argued against the offering of the daily lamb because all his iniquities were remitted on the annual day of atonement, Leviticus, Leviticus 16.21. So far as the satisfaction of Christ has been offered once for all and is eternally valid before God, it allows no repetition or addition. But considering forgiveness as the act of God, as the moral governor of the world, it is continuous unto the same person. In the nature of the case, sin cannot be formally pardoned before it is committed. As we daily commit trespasses, we are to daily ask for their forgiveness. Matthew six eleven and 12. Note the and at the beginning of verse 12. This Reformation audio track is a production of Stillwater's Revival Books. SWRB makes thousands of classic Reformation resources available, free and for sale, in audio, video, and printed formats. Our many free resources, as well as our complete mail-order catalog, containing thousands of classic and contemporary Puritan and Reform books, tapes, and videos at great discounts, is on the web at www swrb.com. We can also be reached by email at swrb at swrb.com, by phone at 780-450-3730, by fax at 780-468-1096, or by mail at 4710-37A Avenue, Edmonton, that's E-D, M-O-N-T-O-N, Alberta, abbreviated capital A, capital B, Canada, T6L3T5. You may also request a free printed catalog. And remember that John Calvin, in defending the Reformation's regulative principle of worship, or what is sometimes called the scriptural law of worship, commenting on the words of God, which I commanded them not, neither came into my heart, from his commentary on Jeremiah 7.31, writes, God here cuts off from men every occasion for making evasions, since he condemns by this one phrase, I have not commanded them, whatever the Jews devised. There is then no other argument needed to condemn superstitions than that they are not commanded by God. For when men allow themselves to worship God according to their own fancies, and attend not to his commands, they pervert true religion. And if this principle was adopted by the Papists, all those fictitious modes of worship in which they absurdly exercise themselves would fall to the ground. It is indeed a horrible thing for the Papists to seek to discharge their duties towards God by performing their own superstitions. There is an immense number of them, as it is well known, and as it manifestly appears. Were they to admit this principle that we cannot rightly worship God except by obeying his word, 
they would be delivered from their deep abyss of error. The prophet's words, then, are very important when he says that God had commanded no such thing and that it never came to his mind, as though he had said that men assume too much wisdom when they devise what he never required, nay, what he never knew.